0: Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Cheryl. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. We are in week four of our series called Freedom, walking through the book of Galatians. And I just want to begin like this. I want to ask you, have you ever heard the phrase, a hill to die on? Has anybody ever heard that phrase? A hill to die on. Have you ever had a situation that was so essential to you that it became a hill to die on? When, when something is of such value to you, it has a real uh, maybe, let's just say a, a, a depth of importance. It's so rooted. It's something that's incredibly essential to you. That would be defined as a hill to die on. I mean, You wouldn't even consider ever wavering on this. Why? Help me finish the sentence. Because it's a what? A hill to die on. Thank you. You would never be willing to compromise or cave on this. Why? Because it's a hill to what? Die on. This is not something that is based on opinion or even belief. It's something based on a word called... Conviction. So let's just kind of break down all three of those words: opinion, belief, and conviction. And we'll see what they mean. opinion means a view, a judgment, or an appraisal formed in the mind about a particular matter. It's a generally held view, um, not as strong as a belief. Um, a belief would be a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or thing. It's stronger than an opinion. It's something accepted and considered to be fact. Or true, but even still, not a solid definition for the word conviction. Belief, not as strong as as um, a, you know, is um, conviction. Conviction is a state of being convinced. It's beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is way stronger than just an opinion or even belief. So when we say conviction, this hill to die on is something that's based on conviction. Conviction. Some people today would even take politics to that place where political preference has become a hill to die on. It's dividing a lot of people. They have such deep convictions in the political arena as to what the politicians are gonna be doing in office that's gonna have lasting implications or even deep ramifications on the society in which they desire to live. So therefore, it becomes what? A hill to what? Die on. Well, Paul finds himself in this place when it came to the gospel of Jesus. Bigger than political opinion or belief, bigger than anything, when, when you're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, I would even say that this is probably deeper than conviction to Paul. And so to catch us up to speed, I, I want us to see, you know, in the beginning of this letter to Galatians, we started a few weeks ago, this church in Galatia that Paul planted, it was being pulled into some false teaching by religious leaders called Judaizers. Um, It's kind of a a branch of Pharisee, if you will. And and Paul is writing this church to rebuke them for compromise and even caving in so soon. And he's trying to remind them of truth, what truth is. And we've got this, this issue, this problem, because there's two conflicting messages that are happening. There's the message of Paul who planted the church. And then there's the message of the Judaizers. Paul's message we see in chapter one, based on revelation, the truth of Jesus and Jesus alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, including no human effort necessary. And well, let me say it like this: a friend of mine named Tully Chavijan, he 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 says it this way: Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is a great simpleton definition of Even Paul's message, the gospel that Jesus revealed to him, it's Jesus plus nothing else, no human effort involved. It was all him. So salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything versus the message of the Judaizers. Yeah, go ahead and have Jesus, but also keep the law. Salvation by works, inclusive of tradition, human effort, which is Jesus plus law and tradition, Would equal, I don't even know what. So I said manipulated gospel. It's a man-made manipulation of the gospel. Paul is—he's at a critical juncture here, and this is indeed a hill to die on. He—he's not fighting for just his personal opinion. He's not fighting for tradition or his, his his personal belief. He's fighting for the truth of divine revelation. I mean, this is beyond opinion and belief. He is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is deep-rooted conviction in this. Why? Because of the revelation of Jesus himself. We saw in Galatians 1.12. It says that it was revealed to him by Jesus himself. Jesus changed his life. And Paul's life as he knew it was totally interrupted by Jesus on that trail to Damascus. We saw that a couple weeks ago, And, and even as I said last week, you know, interruptions with Jesus bring more than just inspiration. When your life gets interrupted by Jesus, your life gets changed by Jesus, and we call that conversion. I even went further and said, you know what conversion produces? Conversion produces conviction. In other words, the fruit of your gospel conversion will bring godly conviction, Paul's life was interrupted by a vision of the risen Christ. It was the risen Christ that gave Paul salvation. It was the risen Christ that brought Paul conversion. And it was the risen Christ that gave Paul this revelation. And now we see in this letter to the church of Galatia, based on this revelation from Jesus, um, we need to understand it is just as relevant now, today, in my opinion, The letter to the church at Galatia is just as relevant now today as it was then. Why? Because tragically, listen, the many detractors that Paul had in his day have many successors in ours. The many detractors that Paul had in his day have many successors in ours. They may not be outright trying to negate Paul himself as it was back then or challenging his authority, his apostleship, his calling, or or even his commission, but the spirit of religion that was manipulating Paul's message most definitely and defiantly still exists today, doing what it can do to continue to try and twist truth into a false gospel narrative. This is what these first few chapters of Paul's letter is all about. Paul's encouraging the church. We too need to be encouraged today, and I believe that. Listen, it says, The message or gospel Paul declared was a message divinely delivered By Jesus himself. It's trustworthy. We can can put a a flag right there. It's a hill to die on. Everywhere that Paul went, everything that Paul did, he was constantly being inundated by false teachers, doing what they could do to discredit his message and challenge his authority. As soon as he was proclaiming the gospel and planning a church, false teachers arrived on the scene to try to pervert it. But Paul would never compromise and Paul would never cave in. So as we pick up in chapter two, It's important to know one way that false teachers of Paul's day tried to undermine his authority was to hint or sow seeds that the gospel Paul proclaimed was different than even that of Peter's. It was different. And and even... They would try to contrast Paul's message with with not only Peter, but with Peter and all of the other apostles. So do you see the kind of the issue that they're bringing up here? I mean, which one is the acceptable gospel? Should they follow Paul or should they follow Peter and all these other apostles? This is exactly what the Judaizers were whispering into the church of Galatia, causing division, causing disunity. Which gospel is it? I mean, what is the result of this? Do we doubt in the church now? Are are we wavering? I mean, you know, Paul is rebuking this wavering, but but look at Galatians one six. That's what he starts with. He says, you know, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserted. Well, of course, you've got such crazy chaos happening as these guys who seemingly are trustworthy, the religious leaders of the day, they're the ones causing the issue, saying, well, who do you believe, Paul or Peter and the other apostles? Paul's like, how could you, I mean... This is a revelation from Jesus himself. It was freedom. How could you turn so quickly? The Judaizers were trying to disrupt the unity of the apostolic circle. They were openly alleging that the apostles contradicted one another. Their game, one might say, is this. It's not robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's exalting Peter to spite Paul. John Stott said that, and I thought it was Fascinating. It's not robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's exalting Peter to spite him. So what did Paul do? Let's look at Galatians 2. We're gonna be in one through 10 this morning. Paul starts and he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So 14 years after I met Jesus, he's saying, and he changed everything. 14 years since I was living the life of a Pharisee whose existence seemed to be to destroy Christianity, I went up to Jerusalem again. I took a second trip up there. See, people of that context in that day would say up, mainly because of the elevation of Jerusalem. So he says, I went up to Jerusalem 14 years after my conversion. This is common language. And then Paul says, when I got there, I took two companions with me. He says, after 14 years, I went up, and I took Barnabas and Titus along. Barnabas, one, a Jew, a deep encourager, associated with Paul in his mission to the Gentiles. Um, And then Titus, a Greek, this uncircumcised Gentile, a product of Paul's mission, which was then in dispute. And it's exactly what the Judaizers were challenging. This is a very bold move of Paul here. It was daring. He's taking Titus into the epicenter of the Jerusalem church. I mean, this could have been seen as a deliberate act of arrogance and provocation. But nevertheless, 14 years after conversion, Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He takes these two guys. What was the purpose in going back up to Jerusalem? Verse two, it says, I went up because of a revelation. I went up because of a revelation. This is different than what he was talking about. He's saying, I didn't go up there because I was told to go up there. I'm I'm taking my two guys with me, and and not because God summoned me to, or or not because the uh, apostles summoned me to, but because God told me to. I was supposed to go because God said, not because the apostles said. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. I went for the purpose of setting this gospel before them, the apostles. I set this revelation that Jesus gave me before the apostles because God told me to. You know, as I was thinking about that, as I was writing this this sermon, it made me kind of question some things. It made me question things like, you know, um, what are we doing or not doing that God told us to do. I mean, even, even in, when it's risky, I mean, this is totally free, right? It really didn't have much to do with it, but it, it's just me just kind of peeling back the onion and letting you see as I'm writing this thing, man, and God is speaking to me saying, hey, what are some of the things that I've told you to do that you've not done? Or what are some of the things that you have done because it was the thing that you thought you were supposed to do? Maybe the religious thing that you were supposed to do. Think about it. Think about it, lest we fall into an issue where we were to hear le- words like Paul's when he's saying, I'm astonished. Who's? Why are you here? What are you doing? What are you doing? So because of the confusion being caused by the Judaizers, calling into question the possibility of these two gospels, Peter's version and Paul's version, Paul goes into this private meeting with the apostles, not because he has to, because God told him to. Verse two again says, and I met privately before those who seemed influential. I went and we met because of a revelation, and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Don't be mistaken, church. I want you to hear this. Don't have any any thought of, of, of thinking that Paul had any doubt about his gospel message to the Gentiles. There was no doubt in his mind. He needed absolutely no reassurance about what he was called and chosen to do. He needed no reassurance about the message that he had been proclaiming already, don't forget, for 14 years. I mean, he is 14 years deep into preaching and ministering to the Gentiles. He's got a product of that ministry with him in Titus. Imagine at this point all that Paul had seen and all that Paul had done. His meeting with the Apostles was not for validation of the revelation that he had with Jesus, but more for confirmation and unification so that the people would stop living in confusion. Paul humbles himself. He, he goes to meet with the apostles so that his ministry, past, present, and future, would not be rendered pointless or fruitless because of the loud voices of the Judaizers. Again, according to John Stott, his meeting was more to overthrow their influence, not to strengthen his own conviction. Paul's message was embraced so much so that he says in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So consider this, Paul armed with the gospel that he is preaching to the Gentiles, goes before the apostles, and he takes a Gentile with him. I mean, what would the reaction to that be? I mean, he's going to go into the center of Jewish life and in the hub of it all, and he takes Titus. And he's, he's bringing this revelation of Jesus, and he's setting it before them. I mean, what do you think that the, re, the, the reaction is going to be to this? Would they receive Titus as a brother? Would they repudiate Titus and Paul? I mean, if they didn't, what would this mean for Paul and his message? Would they affirm Paul's gospel? Would they endorse Paul's gospel or would they try to modify it in some way? These are all the questions on everyone else's minds. Again, with Stott, I love his commentary on this. It's so good. He, he articulates the temperature of this meeting very well. He says, behind all of this was the fundamental question, would the liberty with which Christ has made us free be maintained, or would the church be condemned to bondage and sterility? Were there any grounds for the Judaizers' rumors that there was a rift in the rank of the apostles? It's here that Paul begins to tell us what happened quite possibly one of the most important meetings in the history of the church in reference to the gospel. He says, his Gentile companion three, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised though he was Greek. I mean, this is absolutely massive. This means that the end result of this meeting with the apostles in that the gospel stands, the gospel stands, but not without struggle. Look at verse four, he continues. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they may bring us back into slavery. So they may bring us into slavery. See, the Judaizers, they're not gonna do anything that could, I mean, they're, they're gonna do everything that they absolutely possibly could do to get their message across and to continue to manipulate the message of Jesus. They send in some of their own secretly, you know, their people and, Paul calls them false brothers. These guys were most likely from the party of the Pharisees, the strictest religious leaders of Judaism. And why were they sent? They were sent to spy out the freedom that Paul and the people that were following Jesus had. They were spying out the freedom that was found in the liberating gospel message of Jesus. And why were they there? They were there for the purpose of bringing slavery back into the mix, if you will. He's, Paul even said it, that they would bring us into slavery. They wanted to ensure that, that life would be according to the, the customs of Judaism along. Yes, go ahead, have your belief in Jesus, but make sure you're doing this as well. Acts 15, 5, look what it says. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary. This is why it is so massive. When you see that Paul takes Titus into the courts with the apostles. He sets this revelation of Jesus down before him and says, this is what I've been proclaiming for 14 years. This is what is on the line. This is what the Judaizers out there are manipulating and distorting and trying to cause chaos and disunity in the church. This right here. And the apostles say, what? They say, hey. That's Okay, we affirm what you're doing. We affirm it. That's why it's massive when he says, and not even Titus, the product, the fruit of the gospel that we have been preaching was told he had to be circumcised as a Jew. It's massive. Verse five, but it says this. Look at Paul. This is why I say he'll on. Look at what it says. Paul says this, verse five. To them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment. These Judaizers who were secretly brought in, they were spying it out. They wanted to bring us back into slavery. They were trying to manipulate and distort and bring all sort of religion and tradition into the mix when it came to the simple, pure truth of salvation is grace alone through faith alone because of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 5, Not even for a moment did we yield in submission so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I I need you to understand this, church. As I was studying this, you know, honestly, as I started reading through, I've been more anxious and amped up to get into chapter 5 and 6. Like, I'm like, can we just get to chapter 5 and 6, you know, because I I love it. And so as as I'm studying and reading this, I'm like, okay, yes, 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 we're going to get through all this. And and it's going to be, yeah, okay. But when I got to this this week and all of a sudden God just kind of sat on me on this verse, you know what I realized about chapter 2, verse 3, 4, and 5? Is I realized that this is such massive news for us today to truly wrap our minds around and for our hearts to deeply appreciate. It is so massive that when Paul says, not even for a second did we yield to them so that we might preserve the gospel for you. Do you understand the generational lineage of how much time has passed, how much water has gone under the bridge, how many people have carried the the message of the gospel so that in 2017, in May, we could sit in this place right here and and still understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ. It is massive. Somebody say, come on, oh yeah, Amen. Somebody, something. I mean, this is big stuff. He says, we didn't give it to them for one second. We didn't even blink. Not even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. So that the purity of this message and mission of Jesus would be preserved for you. For you, out of a deep love for Jesus and you. Paul says, we did not yield. We did not surrender. We did not compromise. I gotta be honest, when it came to that, we did not surrender, I'm an 80s baby, right? Like I was raised in the 80s and that Corey Hart song kept playing. Never surrender your love. I was trying so hard to figure out a way to make that illustration. Y'all have no idea. I spent 20 minutes going, surely I can make this happen. I just wanna play the track put my sunglasses on. I wear my sunglasses. Come on, somebody. Some of y'all did sixth grade slow dance to that. I know what's up. I know what's up. Yeah, that has nothing to do with this. All right. Out of a deep love for Jesus, Paul says, man, I did not yield. I did not surrender. I did not compromise. We never caved, not even once, not even nearly. Too much was at stake. Too much was on the line. You, your family, future generations of your family, future generations of the church. Man, this is so important. It's so important, the gospel, preserving the purity of the message and mission of Jesus. No compromise, no caving in, not even for a minute. This is a hill worth dying on because ultimately your life was a hill worth Jesus dying on. This is massive, not even for a minute, Paul goes on. More about the meeting, verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows absolutely no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Those last four words are big. They added nothing to me. I did not require their validation to my revelation. I desired unity. I desired the purity of the gospel to be recognized. I desired the preservation of the gospel message. I desired an acknowledged accountability, but I did not need their validation. And yes, in the old system, maybe, maybe we needed that religious validation. No, 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 no. The only validation we need is grace alone through faith alone because of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Because of the unity of the church, sometimes unity calls for accountability. I might say it again. Because of the unity of the church, sometimes unity calls for submission and accountability. His submission was not because he had to. His submission was willful. I choose to. I will come and humble myself. I am going to come to your place and I'm going to lay this message down before you. I don't need your validation. God shows no partiality. You may seem influential, but the only one that I'm here to please is God Himself. The outcome. The result of this meeting, nothing was added to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and that they would go to the the circumcised. Though nothing was added to me, much was accomplished, Paul says. The Gentile message was not contradicted. Nothing was modified in Paul's gospel message. Titus was accepted. The gospel message Paul was preaching was accepted. Any perceived tension in the apostolic ranks was proven to be a rumor, and just the opposite. Paul says in verse nine, we were extended the right hand of Christian fellowship, which means they accepted Barnabas and me as partners of theirs. We shook hands on it. That's what Paul's saying. They accepted me and Barnabas. We shook hands on it. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. The apostles recognized that they and Paul had been entrusted with the same gospel. The only difference between them was that they had been allocated different spheres in which to preach it. This was a great and resounding victory for the gospel of Jesus. And Paul ends with verse 10. It's as if the apostles said, okay, yeah, we're all good here. But, but the only thing that we ask is that you remember the poor says, everything is good, but don't forget the poor. Remember the poor. And Paul says, this is the very thing I was eager to do. See, as Paul writes to the church at Galatia, he's filling them in on all that had happened and, and for what reason that it had happened. And he ends with this part of the letter by saying, although... We had been extended the right hand of fellowship. The Judaizers were still yet to be silenced so there would be more work to do. There would have to be intentional effort to promote unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. One potential immediate and practical way to build a bridge here would be to care for the poor, to care for those that are poor, especially in Jerusalem. Why? Because the care for and concern and treatment of the poor had been an issue. Fair treatment between the rich and poor had been an issue. So many in the Jerusalem church was made up of people in a cycle of poverty. And so the apostle said, remember the poor. Paul said, man, this is exactly what I was eager to do. And Paul did that very thing. I mean, he took a whole missionary journey. The whole focus of it was this, to care for the poor. Why? Because this is the gospel in action. And this is conviction borne out of the compassion of Jesus. It's impossible to separate loving Jesus from loving the poor, whether that's physical poverty, whether that's financial poverty, mental poverty, spiritual poverty. It's impossible to completely divorce the truth of Jesus and caring for others. How does this play out in our context? how does this play out in our context? I got a phone call from one of our guys who who works in some city government around here. And he said, John, I'm not sure if you've heard. And he told me a story that has now hit the news pretty far and wide of a family just a few miles this way. Three houses in a row, full of the same family, multiple members of this family, over 10 people living in these homes. And in one of those houses... As a fire began, the floor collapsed. They could not find three of the children, and they they passed away. How does this play out in our context? You know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing something so encouraging right now. It's one of the first times that I've actually looked at social media in a long time, and I've been encouraged. Because I'm seeing the church in our greater area come together and say whatever is necessary. One of the first things that I was asked to do was find a location for your funeral. I don't know if they're gonna use it or not, but of course I called our mother church and I said, Pastor Jeff, here's what's happened. Would you be willing to open the doors at no cost for this family? And immediately he takes back and said, whatever they need, whatever they need. You know what that was to me? That was just another affirmation of when the Lord says Do something, the church steps up to do it. Why? Because we have a privilege. We carry the message. We inherited this amazing, life giving, life changing message because of a little meeting. It wasn't a synod, it wasn't some sort of formal council meeting. It was just a gathering of Paul and the apostles where Paul said, Hey, I don't necessarily have to be here, but I want to. Because what I've got to say is so important. It has ramifications worldwide for the rest of time as it takes this way. And we need unity. The church has to be unified. Because of situations just like we're seeing this week. I was also encouraged. I saw a GoFundMe floating around. And I'm going to find it and I'm going to post it on the declaration facebook facebook.com slash declare him if you feel led to partner in this don't do it out of obligation do it out of the opportunity to just carry the gospel in some way sow something into that and let's bless this family that is a that is a tangible expression of the conviction of jesus it is a hill to die on that's no one else's responsibility but the church's to do something that they can, to show the love of Jesus to a family in dark, dark times, in deep need. I was also encouraged because not a week ago, not even a week ago, dear friends of ours at Crossroads Baptist Church was out there in that community doing a a musical with them. And they met these children who passed away. So they're active. Our mother church, Woods Edge, is active. We're active. The community is active. It's just a tangible expression of what happens when conviction is born out of the compassion of Jesus because of this life-changing, life-giving message called the gospel. The gospel. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'm going to ask you some questions. What gospel are you living by? Is it God's grace, your goodness? Is it Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Or is it Jesus plus your activity, your works? The stuff you can do, the money you can give. Are you moved to do something even small for this family? Because you feel like you should? Maybe it'll bring you a little closer to God. Or are you moved because you know that you can? And because you love God, it's something in you that's compelling you to do it. Can I tell you something, church? Your activity is not a prerequisite, your activity in Jesus is out of response. the truth, because it's salvation, grace alone through faith alone Jesus plus nothing equals everything are you living a gospel of freedom? what have you believed about the gospel? have you encountered any false brothers on your path? have you encountered any spies in the local church today? Have you encountered any modern day Pharisees or Judaizers who introduced rules, policies, extra steps that seem necessary for salvation or full participation in the Christian life? Don't listen to them. They've existed since the day of Paul and they still exist today. Salvation is grace alone through faith alone. Jesus and Jesus only. say that you're living out the true gospel message no compromise, no caving in, are you living in freedom Father may we live out of a conviction of compassion because of the great love of God lavished upon us at the expense of Jesus Christ thank you God for our freedom that you purchased us this morning. If you're in this house this morning and and you know that, man, that's what you need. You need the love of Jesus. Maybe you've done religion. Maybe you've done church. Maybe you were raised in a beautiful expression or tradition of something about God. But today, you want to know God personally, intimately for yourself. I'm going to invite you it's just really simple the word says call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved it could be as simple as you just even simply saying Jesus I believe you I believe you and I want to know you I want you to take over my life the Bible says because of the cross he forgives you of sin so maybe you would even say thank you for forgiving me and making me brand new I want to be your friend And when we do that, we pray in Jesus' name. So you would say in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Listen, church, with your eyes closed for just one more second, if you've said that prayer this morning, would you simply lift a hand so I can see you so I know who I'm praying for this week? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, I see you. I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna invite you to do something. There's, on that connect card... There's a place where you would put your name and then at the very bottom, you could say, I'm committing my life to Jesus or maybe I'm recommitting my life to Jesus. Would you please check that so I can reach out to you this week? Everyone else, would you look up for just a second? I want you to hear, this is the gospel, a tangible visual of it. Jesus was whole. We were broken. Genesis 3, 7, everything was broken. And God sent Jesus so that we didn't have to stay that way. He willingly chose to be broken so that we could be made whole he was full we were empty he willingly emptied himself and spilled his blood to cover the sin of the world so that we could be filled so this morning as the communion team comes some call it communion some Eucharist some Lord's Supper as they come they're gonna offer this to you as we respond as we worship as we stand and sing we're gonna have three stations one in the middle, one on the right and the left. And what we do is we invite you to come to the table. You're welcome. Come humbly, come thankful, and come ready to receive. This is sacramental. God is meeting with us in this moment. Take that bread, which represents the body of Christ, dip that into the juice. We call it intinction. It represents the blood of Christ. Thankfully, humbly, take and eat, drink, and declare the Lord's death to the Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church Podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare Him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, visit declaration.org slash podcast.